I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, a psychoanalyst based in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 226 of Rendering Unconscious podcast. My guest today is Simone Medina Polo. She's here to talk about her love of philosophy, specifically Hegel, and psychoanalysis. She's a philosopher and an MA researcher at the Global Center for Advanced Studies for Philosophy and Psychoanalysis. She also creates music under the moniker Pseudo Antigone. You can follow her work at Medium, as well as follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Pseudo underscore Antigone. Rendering Unconscious is also a book Rendering Unconscious Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, available at Chapart Books. Just visit the publisher's website, trapart.net. You can support Rendering Unconscious Podcast by visiting our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. This year, Rendering Unconscious Podcast is celebrating five years. Thank you so much to all the guests, listeners, and especially the Patreon community. I wouldn't be here without you. You can also follow me on social media at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore at Instagram and Twitter or follow me at TikTok at Dr. Vanessa Sinclair 23. Links to everything can be found at Rendering Unconscious main website, renderingunconscious.org, and you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net. As with nearly all episodes of Rendering Unconscious podcast, there is a video of this discussion available at YouTube. Visit Chapar Films' YouTube channel, that's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film, at YouTube, or search for Rendering Unconscious Podcast. I know that the last time we chatted, it was in the context of the course on repetition uh, repetition and the unconscious that I took in JCAS. And that was a very like fantastic experience. I love a lot of what you brought into the mix of that. And it was very relevant at a point where I was starting to discern what my thesis was going to be. But also I was writing a piece for a compilation that Dwayne Roussel and Julie Rochet at the time was going to be one of the editors. Uh, and that's Mark Gerard, Gerard Murphy. Um, they are building this compilation on psychoanalysis and negativity. And, and so I was working something along the lines of like, how is uh, tragedy and comedy significant for the end point of analysis as well as the end point of like philosophy as a lived experience? Um, so I was very interested on that because I, one of the things that really got my attention in that class was, uh, I, I think you might remember this, I emailed you about it. It was uh, talking about uh, how repetition, specifically in the context of like uh, drama in, in the ancient Greek uh, context, it was a lot about processing experience. It was very significant for war veterans. So we had a little bit of an interchange about it then. Uh, yeah. So that's the first thing. Yeah. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Like, um, yeah, my research scope has kind of like jumped a few places since, but I think that's like 
what framed a lot of what I've been up to, like both theoretically, but also like practically since. And what have you been up to since? Yeah. Uh, so I changed, originally I, my central question for my uh, thesis, for my, my my thesis was going to be very focused on the notion of omphaloskepsis. Uh, another way of saying it is navel gazing, uh, just as this practice of like looking at one's navel, pondering origin, uh, asking questions about where we come from. And I, I was initially very interested on this question, like, oh, how do we process this thing? Because it's very common for philosophy to be considered a navel-gazing practice. And similarly enough for psychoanalysis, right? Like I'm looking at this little empty space in myself and it always points me towards something else. And I'm trying to like figure out what that something else is. Um, so I was very interested on this, like, you know, common is seen that we find in some of the founding myths of psychoanalysis and philosophy. In philosophy, we have the myth of Socrates and the whole interaction with, um, with the, or, and I was having this like lingering thought from an Alenka Svenchik um, essay. Um, I think it was uh, sexuality within the limits of reason alone, where she mentioned something along the lines that like, you know, the, we struggle with this question of like engaging with uh, God's navel uh, and trying to think about like, what, why do we have such a troubling relationship with depicting that in paintings? Why is it always covered over in some way? And it's just almost like this little failure in God or like in the most like, I don't know, archaic, like ontotheological uh, aspect of how we think about metaphysics altogether. And so the, the kind of thing that Alenka mentions around those lines is, you know, um, and also interestingly enough, the endpoint for both uh, philosophy and psychoanalysis in some way. Uh, so both of these figures, Oedipus and Socrates, turn to, towards these people, uh, like this person, the Oracle of Delphi, find themselves kind of caught up in this question uh, of like, you know, learning to know yourself, know thyself, uh, engaging with this question of like the Delphic maxims of, you know, engaging with like ultimately uh, coming to know themselves. I think there's a significant aspect of like Socrates, for example, was more comedic and ironic about this. Like, how can you tell me that I'm the smartest dude in the world? I'm just going to go like bug all these other people to see if anyone else is actually smarter than me. And of course that got him eventually killed. Uh, because that disturbed a lot of things um, in the in Athenian society. And then on the other end, we tend to have the more Oedipal uh, tragic avenue where like he only discovers in retrospect that he was the person in question of the entire like plot of Oedipus Rex. And so he ends up having to assume this kind of responsibility for an act that he felt himself detached from until he realized that was him. So I think of the whole uh, Freud line of... Uh, like where it is, there I shall be. And so, um, so so the main thing that brought me to think about this originally, and this question eventually changed to something else, though I still want to explore this, uh, was, you know, how is it that there's a interesting commonplace for philosophy and psychoanalysis in the question of navel gazing? Um, and why is it so significant? You know, like, I, I think I, there's a commonplace thing of navel gazing almost being mentioned derogatorily, like uh, navel gazing as this self-indulgent practice that you're almost obsessed with, like something about yourself or asking a question about something that is com a component of yourself. So in this case, the navel. Um, and so, uh, you know, I find it interesting in the context of psychoanalysis, you know, someone who is very ca caught up in their own troubles 
and having to turn to someone else to try to untangle why they are caught up in those troubles about themselves. In philosophy, it's also like in this derogatory way, it kind of starts as like, you know, someone may be caught up trying to be uh, pedantic about like, I want to understand things, but eventually points them into something more than themselves. At least that's how I read Hegel personally. Uh, that, you know, it's almost this like pedagogical process of like, you know, you get really caught up on assuming that you have a hold of wisdom. Slowly, each time that you fail to have wisdom, you realize, okay, the only wisdom I have is the failure of wisdom. And this is actually what connects me with like, not just individually, but also with what he calls spirit as a more uh, like generalized collective intellection. So my relationship with other peoples is through this fundamental failure, which I find very interesting also in the context of like Lacanian love in the real sense, where it is through the failure that we love. Um, so, so I find that there's a lot of very interesting intertwining questions that come up with this navel gazing thing. Since I changed my thesis question actually to the question of love as it relates to philosophy and psychoanalysis. So um, it's still related in some way to this, uh, but I was very interested on the question like, you know, how is it that both Lacanian psychoanalysis thinks about love? Uh, of course, uh, as I mentioned already, the Lacanian real sense of love as opposed to the imaginary, like, oh, I just got up in a imaginary image i'm uh, patching over the fundamental failures and gaps of the real uh, i'm more interested in the like let's engage with those gaps because it is through those gaps that we can genuinely find something in that abyss and that's what constitutes lacanian love at least for me and then in the more like um yeah, like in, in these lines, also bringing up that uh, quote by Elaine Kasupantrick, we find something fundamentally real in that gap, in that navel, in that fundamental like little empty spot. And that, that's where we start proliferating all these sorts of like metaphysical, like speculative thoughts. And I find that really interesting from the context of philosophy, from this notion of the love of wisdom, and that eventually, I think, in my opinion, becoming a wisdom of love. Um, the way I see it is kind of along the lines of like Plato's Symposium. Um, that in Plato's Symposium, at least by the time that we get to Socrates, he tells us the story about his teacher, Diotima, and he essentially tells us, like, you know, this is a person that got me to understand what I was doing in some way. Uh, she tells me this wonderful myth about uh, what it means to uh, engage with, the with love and love as it pertains to wisdom, as this relationship between plentifulness and poverty. Uh, so poros and penia would be the ancient Greek terms for each of these respectively. And so um, what I find very interesting is that uh, the ultimate throughout this entire thing describes love as, as this means, this in-between, between, between uh, this poverty and this plentifulness. And if we think of philosophy as, as uh, sort of like medium in between is this medium between a pre-philosophical pre moment and then a post-philosophical realization like oh this is what I'm doing this is what I've been doing all along uh, so like uh, I, I know that Lacan comments on this and also Isabel Millar has commented on this to some extent but what I find interesting is that when you are falling in love with wisdom there's this agalma or this objectia that attaches in, into someone that you see as the subject supposed to know or the person who has some wisdom. And that starts mobilizing just uh, this, this love, this pursuit of wisdom. Um, so in Socrates, that was the Otima where he saw that agalma attached to. And on the other end, uh, I think of Alcibiades, uh, uh, I don't know how to pronounce Greek. Uh, who finds that same agalma, that same objepetia in Socrates, who is just like, just 
teasing him along the line. So I think there's something very analytic about that moment in Plato's Symposium, but also something that tells us something about the nature of philosophy itself. That when we fall in love for wisdom, it, it may start on like the wisdom that we may see in others. Uh, and again, it can be like a teacher that inspires us to think. There are questions about what we are ourselves doing or what anything is in general. And eventually we start assuming that place more and more. Um, and I think this is my transition from Plato's Symposium to Hegel and why I think Hegel's important. Um, my neighbor is very kind and he's actually currently cleaning. Uh, it's very snowy here, here in Alberta. So he's currently cleaning our sidewalks. He's very kind that way. That's nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, my puppy's just reacting to it. She doesn't know what's happening. Oh, and that's okay. Like I said, it's not live. So if you need to pause and take care of the puppy in any way, feel free. Yeah, I think she stopped being worried as much. It's kind of confused. It's up there. Yeah, I think this son is leaving. So she's, she's being awesome. protective of the house. Yeah, when my partner and I got COVID at the beginning of September, uh, th that's when she started barking, when she heard a noise outside, because we were both very sick, and Aww. she was like, okay, well, I'm now the parent. I'm the one <laughs> taking care of you. Um, yeah, I, I can kind of bring it back now, because it's not as noisy, and I think she's back to sleeping. Um, so I find this interesting relationship between Plato's Symposium and Hegel's whole thing in the phenomenology spirit where um, I see Hegel kind of meeting us as lovers of wisdom, like the preface is almost like teasing and not giving too much away about the phenomenology. And he, what he's trying to basically get us is like, I want to make sure that we get you into that kind of like uh, a galma or that objectivity, getting us into this like love of wisdom. So we're committed the entire time through the phenomenology to try to find wisdoms all the way along through this thing. But of course, the point of the Hegelian dialectic, and I think Todd McGowan summarizes this very incredibly well, is that, you know, the only thing that absolutely knowing is, is this um, exhaustion of every possible pathway or avenue for wisdom, because you always find a contradiction or a fundamental failure that makes it so. Uh, and so each time that we find a failure, it gets exacerbated to the point that we find this like bottom uh, uh, bottom failure that seems to be this kind of coincidence between thought and being. Um, I, th I think the Lacanian equivalent would be something along the lines of the failure that we find in nature and the failure that we find in culture and how they're generative of each other. I know that Alisa Lenka, Zapanchik, and Slavoj Žižek talk about this to some extent. Um, but we find this failure that is kind of like the shortcutting failure and um, we learn to find ourselves in that position as this kind of like, this is what we've been doing all along. Uh, it's this kind of urge to philosophy that is itself the like almost like inspiring failure that gets us philosophizing. So the only wisdom that I arrive at is this failure and how this failure is also like form of urge or drive to philosophy. And so um, my own takeaway of the Hegel uh, Hegelian approach in the phenomenology spirit is similar to what I see here in Plato's Symposium learning us to inspire or fall in love with wisdom. And by the time that we're done, we actually end up with a wisdom of the love. And I think what Hegel kind of puts as a, as, as a, a kind of onus on ourselves going back and looking back at the phenomenology of spirit is 
turning back the other lovers of wisdom who are caught up in that love of wisdom and along the way kind of meeting them where they are at. So if they're caught up in a particular sort of like wisdom, how can you like nudge them or pin them their own way? I think analysts tend to do something very similar with their own analytic practice, you know, trying to identify someone's clinical structure or trying to identify how someone is engaging with like the nodding of one's own symptom in speech. How can we find the like most perfect interpretation as a form of intervention for getting things moving along. I find that Hegel does something kind of similar and invites us to do something similar with philosophers. Um, so that's kind of where I've been finding myself bringing all these things together. I find that love is very central to both philosophy and psychoanalysis for different reasons. Uh, uh, like psychoanalysis confronts us with this fundamental like finitude of like sex and sexuation and sexuality where we're confronted with this fundamental separation and love is when we find something in the in-between. Uh, it's not quite a sexual relation. What makes up for the sexual relationship is in fact love. It's uh, what Lacan says. Uh, so I find that very curious and interesting and I dig a lot into it. And then in philosophy, um, the philosophical love uh, or what, the love that makes philosophy philosophy is this medium between a pre-philosophical state and then a post-philosophical state where, you know, you may not quite be a philosopher. That may occur to you again that you're, you need to go through that process again, kind of like an analyst uh, trying to pass as an analyst and trying to record that again. Um, but now you find yourself in this position where you look back at people who are caught up in that process and you find yourself as like this sort of like, um, I almost compare it to a bodhisattva in the Buddhist tradition, someone that comes uh, like mediate your way along this and help, helps prop you up in, into this movement further. So you can find your way along, along it down the line. Um, and, and for me, I find it very interesting to thematize this question because for me it's very central to uh, what I find is significant to love is this radical otherness that introduces something new into being. And I think that's something very common I find into um, psychoanalysis and philosophy. And the main reason why I'm interested on it to begin with is, you know, uh, we live in a society, uh, a capitalist society, where or we're experiencing a certain totality of relationships, affairs that are uh, coming across this threshold limit. Uh, people like Mark Fisher or like Slavoj Žižek or Frederick Jameson have formulated this as like, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. So for me, it's this question like, okay, since we can't think anything new, since we can't think a radical outside, uh, outside capitalism, what does it mean for us to try to engage or uh, provoke something genuinely new? And I think the question of love offers us a lot uh, to this contemporary predicament, not just in the instance of like material capitalism, but in terms of like our cultural relationships. And e even in some, some ways, like uh, engaging with questions of like ethics in general or aesthetics. I think there's a lot to pick about this question of love that, that I find so crucial to philosophy and psychoanalysis. So, so these are the main things that are kind of like going in my brain right now uh, and what I've been kind of working on for the past year. Uh, anything ranging from this like on phyloskepsis, this whole like, oh, how is it that this little hole in our soul gets us thinking about things? And on the other end, like, okay, if we find something genuinely like there in that hole, uh, what does that mean for both philosophy and psychoanalysis? That What does it, this question of love arrive us at? Um, so this is what's happening over here. I, I think that's kind of the best summary I can give to it. I love yeah. it. And I love your enthusiasm for psychoanalysis and philosophy and how it like 
uh, you could see opening questions and the kind of wheels turning and it's yeah it's so refreshing yeah for me it's always a lead question right like uh, i'm very hegelian in the sense that like if a question is not a living question it's dead and it therefore is not going to be the true form of truth at all so for me this is a lived thing yeah exactly it has to be lived and it has to be yeah generative that's like that's uh to me that's the core of psychoanalysis and philosophy too is like that it keeps opening questions and opening possibilities and i don't understand i mean i do understand historically how it took a turn in this other direction where it like turned into something that becomes like very institutional or is like trying to lock knowledge in place but fortunately as you said that that always fails you know that you it's not possible uh, no matter how much these kind of structures try yeah, I find and the main reason why like I tend to go through the Lacanian or Freudian and the Hegelian approach to this question of like, you know, life, the enlivening, uh, that aliveness, you know, there's a vitalism to both of these things, but it's not like a Deleuzian vitalism or like a Bergsonian vitalism. Uh, I, th I think it's, it's this question where the negativity or the lack or the failure is actually what vitalizes us. Uh, like in Hegel, uh, this is how I personally understand spirit, that it's not so much like God, as some people may be leaning towards, uh, but it's more about uh, a principle of animation, closer to something like uh, the way that Aristotle formulates it in, in The Anima or the uh, book on the soul. Um, and I know that like Hegel is very like keenly looking at that book uh, so, because it comes up at time in his work. So uh, what I find very interesting is this question, like we're looking at animation, but animation is not just like clear cut. It, it is through failures that things enli are enlivened or feels feel, feel animated. Um, and I think psychoanalysis also reminds us of some view of the sort as well. You know, we're not just like, uh, like a completely uh, like totalized homeostatic body that just maintains this perfect relationships between itself. The point is that something disturbs that homeostasis. There's a reason why we have nightmares, for example. I, I know that Freud uh, and Dwayne Russell actually I think about here, talk a little bit about like, you know, what nightmares reminds us is that even if if this seems to be like a functionless organic body, there's something dysfunctional in it that from the very inside provokes itself into being alive in a sense. Yeah. I love it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so so th those are the things kind of going on here. Um, I'm very interested in these questions. And these are like my broader, more like, uh, universalistic outlooks on philosophy and psychoanalysis. Like if I get more particular, I tend to be very invested into just questions of like decolonial uh, endeavors or like queer and trans stuff. Like I'm ultimately a trans person. So I do have a little bit of like uh foot on in the door to have something to lose or win in that endeavor. So I, I'm very committed, committed into this process of like, and I, I think you might have even come across this in psychoanalysis specifically, but like, how do we talk about transness in psychoanalysis specifically? Uh, I know that people like Alenk, uh, no, sorry, uh, Patricia Gerovici have done like excellent work on that. I tend to follow Patricia's work very closely on this line of thought. Um, but I know there's a lot of like, uh, I don't know, like how to put it, uh, controversies that ha uh, keep coming up in psychoanalysis around that since like Catherine Milot's uh, horse sex or uh, dealing with like the more contemporary, I think in the last two years, there were like three major pieces that I am attacking a lot lately. Um, so one would be uh, Nina Powers, uh, Can Freud Save Us From Gender Madness? Um, where she tries to argue essentially that like, 
um, that we shouldn't really concern ourselves with like non-binary or like trans questions uh, because it's this way of erasing uh, sex, uh, the real of sex. And this is a very common like line of thought, like something that Catherine Milot espouses, something that Jacqueline Miller espouses and other thinkers along that line. Uh, and I find that this is a fundamental mistake of understanding these questions. Like my approach to it is, it's not an erasure of the body, it's not an erasure of sex. I find that specifically in transness to begin with, it's a very overt confrontation head on with those questions. To think that they're anything other than that, I think it's very presumptuous. It's really easy to contain these issues into an identity politic. And a lot of people had leaned towards that for sure. And I think there's something to criticize there. But that if we just focus in this sort of like what they call a gender ideology, you miss all the folks that are actually living these experiences who don't necessarily reduce it to an identity or like a purely culturally constructed phenomenon. And so I'm very fascinated by this question uh, and I'm very fascinated by the ways in which people mishandle it. Like Nina Powers' piece, I found it very unfortunate in many ways, just because um, this. Uh, I, I know that it was like a magazine piece, so there's only so much scholarship you can do with it, but there were points where it just bring, would bring people who are completely in conflict with themselves and try to treat them as if they're holding the same position, like Slavoj Žižek and Jacqueline Miller, who famously conflict in so many positions, or uh, people like um, like Judith Butler and Joan Kopjek, who like Joan is very well known for like, you know, uh, in Read My Desire, she praises uh, Judith Butler for a lot of the work that they did in Gender Trouble, even though fundamentally disagrees with the more like social constructionist uh, conclusions that Judith Butler arrives to. So I find it very disingenuous to just like make this into two irreconcilable camps, like there's sex and then there's gender. I think this misses the nuance of psychoanalysis because uh, as some people like to say, like Alenka Zbankshik, there's a th third little thing and this is what actually makes the difference from like a biological reductionism and then like the more Butlerian, Foucauldian like, uh, construction of like social discourses perspective. And that would be kind of like the failure I introduced earlier between nature or culture or specifically uh, what in psychoanalysis we call sexuation. It's basically how do I deal with the fact that this body is not a functional body by any means, it's consciously dysfunctional. And not only that it is it dysfunctional, it is trying to symbolize the dysfunction and simultaneously that uh, this function that uh, that is symbolized has to be embodied in some way. And I think that's exactly what like in some way like trans experiences are trying to do. This body is at odds with itself and is coming to get at, in touch with itself in some form. And it's a constant struggle. It's a constant tension with the negativity of transness. It's not just a pure positive identity. And so... Um, yeah, so, so I find this really inter interesting because it, it tries to, I find oftentimes um, when some folks in the Lacanian school deal with the question of transness, it's almost more like a, um, a straw person or a straw trans person than actually like engaging in, in a dialogue with trans people. Uh, I know that uh, Jacqueline Miller, for example, uh, had his major controversy with Paul Preciado uh, around what came to develop that book uh, called Can the Monster Speak? Uh, and I, I think this is one of the biggest like uh, controversies happening in psychoanalysis right now, um, because there, there are things I value a lot about Preciado's book. Uh, and I actually kind of agree with Jacqueline Miller that uh, I find that Preciado might actually have uh, mischaracterized what the event was like, because uh, as 
Jacqueline Miller points out, there are recordings of it. So like what Preciado describes in the text, at least to my opinion, didn't quite come through. But my issue with, with Jacqueline Miller here is that he takes uh, takes this controversy and meets it with controversy or just pure polemic, doesn't actually engage with it in any way. So he gets stuck at a certain level of just pure polemic, at least in my opinion. Um, and I find this unfortunate because it, it just becomes this question where like, um, there's a lot of things that Paul Preciado does generally mention that we should be interested on. I'm very interested, for example, in one of the conclusions that he brings up, that is this question like, we need a mutant psychoanalysis. Not only do I agree, but I actually think psychoanalysis is itself that mutation. It's constantly mutating from the very inside. Um, so I cannot agree and disagree with Preciado in some ways. I actually find his scholarship of Freud and Lacan uh, troubling at times, but still he has a lot to offer in terms of like provocative questions. My issue with Miller is the, is though like he does acknowledge a lot of the polemic and only meets it with polemic. And at worst, I find that, and this is kind of what I was mentioning about the straw trans person, he ends up engaging with just imaginary dialogues with imaginary trans people. Uh, I think in his piece responding to Preciado, he precisely mentions uh, that, that, you know, he's engaging ultimately in an open dialogue with imaginary trans people. And he expects certain sorts of like, you know, you have to behave this way in order to actually make a case for yourself. Um, and I have a lot of issues ultimately with that because I find that he's ultimately fetishizing a certain imaginary trans person it's, except for trans people who are actually kind of disturbing a little bit of the like framework of how this analytic field is working in some way. So those are the more like focused analytic issues that I've been working on lately. I know that I have a piece that I've been working on for the European Journal of Psychoanalysis with Dwayne Roussel that deals with this a little bit more explicitly. Uh, taking off a lot from Alenka's, uh, sorry, uh, well, Alenka's work, but also like Patricia Garavici's work. And then I have another one that takes on more the like uh, Gabriel Tupinamba uh, piece, uh, the, the psychoanalysis, uh, because of course that's another piece that has created a lot of controversies in psychoanalysis in the past couple of years. And what I find most interesting about that piece is that I think that it does bring up something very interesting about the question, like what does it mean for psychoanalysis to dislocate itself to new scenarios or circumstances? And this is perhaps more of a philosophy of psychoanalysis uh, and there's a risk in that. Um, but he invites us to consider this question of the generic form of psychoanalysis, you know. Uh, he kind of brings up, for example, the example of like, you know, what Lacan helped do, uh, do in regards to Freud is let's dislocate Freud into a different context that allows us to rethink Freudian theory beyond the mythemes that he relies on or the biologisms or energetics that are very common in the Freudian formulations of psychoanalysis. And instead, let's try to understand them in the terms of like math themes, trying to understand them in terms of like uh, structuralism more explicitly, trying to understand them in terms of like, uh, you know, a more open dialogue with philosophy. So Historically, psychoanalysis has essentially already done this. It has dislocated uh, Freudian theory into Lacanian theory in some way. And there's a fidelity between them. So if, even if there were changes in the uh, variables of how they were expressed, I do think there's still this invariant of psychoanalysis. And I find that this is what uh, 
Gabriel Tupinamba is inviting us to consider more strongly. This invariant or the generic psychoanalysis, as, as he puts it, um, because this is what helps us understand a lot of these issues, like what I've been bringing up with trans psychoanalysis. You know, why is it that we are hitting this kind of threshold point or this limit point of how we are able to think about trans people? Uh, why do we think that trying to be trans is inherently trying to be outside sex? Uh, necessarily, which is uh, the kind of position that a lot of folks tend to espouse after Catherine Milot, unfortunately. Um, and so uh, dealing with these questions, like how is it that, you know, when we're caught up in the Lacanian field, or as he puts it, the Lacanian ideology, has it that we are already presuming a lot about what we're going to find in that field? Uh, are these just variables that we can find within the, uh, you know, like parameters we have set ourselves as an analyst to find there? And what does it mean to change those parameters, uh, is essentially? And so I find that very interesting. I think what he offers with a generic form of psychoanalysis is just this, like more like floating invariance of psychoanalysis. What I, I and I think he kind of touches on this, but this is my point that I push a little bit more further: is not only do we need a generic psychoanalysis, we need an impure psychoanalysis that gets its hands dirty. Um, it's kind of like the myth of Tiresias, and I know that uh, that a few folks bringing that up, like the first one to come to mind is Patricia Gerovici. You know, Tiresias, who is the uh, wise blind uh, person who changed sexes several times. And I know that Patricia, for example, has referred to uh, Tiresias as the patron saint of uh, psychoanalysis. And I think we should really reinforce that image. Uh, someone who is willing to undergo these different transformations of psychoanalysis itself as a body and a practice, um, as well as this kind of uh, question like, you know, what does it mean to uh, translocate or transmit or dislocate psychoanalysis altogether? How can we let psychoanalysis uh, have this invariance of transforming itself, but also the like a specific, a specific impurity of like, we have to get our hands dirty to do any proper psychoanalysis. We cannot just engage with a generic psychoanalysis alone. Um, so these are more of the like specific psychoanalytic questions that I've been engaging with that are a little bit more in line with like my political concerns, uh, admittedly, but also with these questions, like I find that specifically transness uh, and queerness gets very uh, badly handled in psychoanalysis and at times. And I think there's a lot to learn from that. I hold this position the same way that Patricia Gerovici does. I think transness teaches us something about the very core of sex and psychoanalysis. And there's an opportunity for us to learn something about ourselves and our very field there. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to tell you, I invited Patricia as well, but I'm editing a book on the queer heritage of psychoanalysis. So I invite you to contribute a piece to the book if you would like. I would love to. Yeah, I I'm so happy to write about queerness, transness, and psychoanalysis. So yeah, count me in. We can Wonderful. definitely chat about that. Patricia's in and Avi's in and Griff is in and it's going to be good. Good stuff. I'm, <laughs> I'm very excited. Yeah, it's definitely been exciting to find that little, uh, well, that part of people that is increasing of people that are reclaiming psychoanalysis to engage with these questions very openly. I, I think there's a lot to do there. And especially like, I, I know that Patricia brings this up, but like, you know, there's this commonplace assumption that psychoanalysis and, and queerness and transness are irreconcilable with each other. 
but they don't have to be. And I think we are currently in the point of like amending that relationship and finding that it's actually productive for both things. I know psychoanalysis was incredibly important for my own transition. So I can, at least from my own personal experience, say that psychoanalysis has something crucial to engage with one's own, like not identity, but this oddness with oneself. And then uh, as, as, uh, as engaging with psychoanalysis, because again, I'm not a psychoanalyst, but I find that engaging with the question of uh, transness, is, it, it brings a lot of insight into what's ultimately happening with psychoanalysis. Anything ranging from like the question that Freud once asked from his teachers, what is the sex that you are all talking about? To this question, like, you know, it, there's some decisive element of a sexuality that we're fleshing out. And I think Jameson Webster uh, gets at this really concretely with her conversion disorder book that is ultimately this question of the past, this question of the conversion in psychoanalysis is a very bodily endeavor. One learns to assume one's own body and one learns to use one's own body as something that can cut through other bodies. And that's what an analyst essentially does. So I think there's very interesting things that we can learn in that conversation there. Yeah. Absolutely. And to me, the, uh, the idea that psychoanalysis and like queer theory of transness is like, irreconcilable it's just like it's so frustrating because there's such a difference between like the institution of psychoanalysis and it's what what it's done to like pathologize people and to like keep psychoanalysis away from people as a practice like with this like it's only psychoanalysis if it's you know this many times a week and you know it's only psychoanalysis with people that are able to like pass all of these kinds of rigorous like intake evaluations to make sure that they're like able to like handle psychoanalysis it's like it kills me because it's like the practice it's like I don't understand and the fact that people that made these rules like have supposedly been through psychoanalysis to me that just makes no sense because it's like if you've been through psychoanalysis then you should not be having those positions anymore yeah <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more because I actually find it embarrassing that it happens to begin with uh, I think well, and this is like I find knows at some point because I don't think he realizes. Uh, I know I'll give a quick example of something I find in his own work that I find very troubling. But uh, he tends to have a lot of disparaging comments of like Ellen Badieu and Slavoj Žižek because of their own appropriations of Lacan. And he he has this quote in some interview he did where he says essentially like today we have uh, Badieu who Badieuizes Lacan and Žižek who Žižekizes uh, Lacan. The games are over. We need to go back to Lacan. But my problem with Miller is that he, he I, I don't know what the issue is exactly. I think he has a lot of power to begin with. And I think we all know this over the corpus of Lacan's work because of being the editor and having a lot of like close relationships to the work. But also he has this sort of like masterful position of over trying to use the name of Lacan. So he's not even able to consider uh, openly the question Am I Millerianizing Lacan? And is there even something wrong with that? Because at a certain point, if we're gone through the past, if we I moved on from the terminal analysis, I moved on into the internal analysis of always learning to pass as an analyst, is, there's no way that you cannot help but uh, own up that thing in your own style. Like Alice Badiou openly by the United Lacan. Alice Shishek openly like uh Lacan. My problem with Miller is that he doesn't seem to realize that he's doing that same thing. 
and I, I think that that would do him a lot of benefit to openly acknowledge his own militarization Lacan, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, there's only a way in which we learn to transmit the Lacanian teaching or the psychoanalytic teaching and learning to own it up in different ways. And this is what I've been talking about, this dislocation of the uh, psychoanalytic teaching. We need to learn to re-embody ourselves again. Uh, I almost think of this uh, discussion that Jesus Christ had with uh, the juror Nicodemus. Um, that I know Martin Luther King talks a lot about this one, but um, George Nicodemus is essentially dealing with the problem of evil. You know, if I um, if I steal, I'll, I'll cheat, I'll murder. He just finds this like co- constant spread of the roots of evil everywhere. So Jesus Christ just looks at himself and just essentially tells him like, dude, you have to re-embody yourselves completely. You have to make yourself anew again. Uh, and I think that's kind of the invitation that we have whenever we are uh, passing and transmitting this psychoanalytic like, teaching. We have to learn to own up our own body again. Uh, we have to learn to re-embody the entire thing, to reframe it. Uh, and that's not only something that we do when we become analysts, but that's also something that we do. As, and I think this is a little bit more openly acknowledged when we deal with the case-by-case scenarios with our analysis. Um so, so I think this is like very important, uh, very important stuff to acknowledge for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And then people, I mean, that's the point of like, you know, if you're going through analysis or you're learning philosophy or you're learning things, you know, at first you learn what other people have thought and taught, but at some point you make your own ideas, you know, <laughs> you're like, and you kind of put things together in your own way. So like you said, like, I have a vested interest, yes, in these kinds of issues, but also like what else everything that anybody's interested in they have a vested interest in that thing or it wouldn't be what's driving them you know what i mean this is like that's how people function you know yeah <laughs> like I, th- I think this is a significant thing like uh, i remember many years ago when i was just really getting into the midst of like any psychoanalysis I remember trying to write this uh, language about the transmission of the Lacanian teaching, um, and specifically like, okay, one, how do we translate Lacan to English? Because I think this is a fundamental problem for many us English speakers, especially when people say like, oh, he just makes no sense. He's saying like a lot of charlatanery. So we know the usual like charges brought against Lacanians here. Um, But also just this question like, you know, is it even a question of using the same words as Lacan at a certain point? Uh, or even Freud for that matter. Like at a certain point, I find that the uh, actual genuine transmission of psychoanalytic wit is this assumption of one's own language in one's own terms and really owning it up the entire way through. Um, so for example, like sometimes I try to explain people people like concepts like the subject supposed to know and I'll use, like my, my, this is like the personal challenge I put to myself. How can I avoid using as much jargon to get at this thing so people can understand it better? And sometimes it's just explaining like, you know, like the subject's supposed to know. You, you know when you think your dad or your mom is kind of like a god and you assume they kind of have everything sorted out? It's kind of like that at times. Uh, you eventually realize how that big otter or the subject supposed to know or your parents fail. Uh, they become dying gods. You start learning how these things ultimately fail. And eventually you yourself have to learn you have to learn to be a dying god. I was kind of having this conversation with my partner recently, actually. Um, but just like, uh, how can, uh, can we uh, have these conversations? Like my partner has no background in philosophy or psychoanalysis. I think most of their interactions have been through me, but we have very fruitful conversations that like we don't need to appeal to the jargon. 
uh, or like, you know, we we can learn to own it up the discussion in our own terms. And I think there's a lot of fruitfulness in that. Um, and the other element of it, I would say, is like, you know, just because something is funny in French doesn't mean that it'll be funny in English the same way. That's a lot of the issues we have translating Lacan. So how can we learn to make our own jokes? Um, and I think this is a fundamental thing also for philosophy. Like, if you don't know the philosophical value of a joke, you're out of your, uh, you won't say anything valuable as a philosopher, in my opinion. Um, I think the ability to have that sort of like flexibility gives us a lot of opportunities. Again, both in the practical sense of being a clinical psychoanalyst for sure, but also in the in the very transformation of the landscape of, of ideas that we may have. Uh, so that's my more Hegelian tinge to things. Um, but yeah, I, I, I find it interesting. Uh, I, I find it interesting that there's this sense of like, Oh, I, I don't know why people think that orthodoxy is the way to go with these things, uh, that we build this like, you know, uh, the way I would put it is articles of faith of the Lacanian faith, in a sense. Um, I, I think we need more heresy Lacanianism. And I think uh, Lacan himself, the way I would put it is, Lacan did that, that to Freud, and I think we owe Lacan the same honor. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I love he said an impure psychoanalysis. <laughs> yeah, a heretical psychoanalysis. Maybe that's my thing. Heretical psychoanalysis. <laughs> I think there's a lot of value in that. Um, and you know, like uh, there's always a risk, the Nietzschean risk of being like untimely or ahead of one sometime. But that's always the case with any dislocation. Um, throughout that piece on dislocations, one of the examples I give is, you know, this is a phenomenon we also find in the history of Marxism, where, uh, you know, the Marxist teaching of Marx was dislocated by Lenin, who once some people claim betrayed Marx in some way. Then it was proclaimed by Mao, who then other people claim that betrayed Marxist Leninism. And so the question I find is, you know, you're there's always a too early, too late phenomenon, uh, or the problem that we find in philosophy and psychoanalysis. And the issue of the untimely ultimately is, is it just, you know, there's no perfect time for us to do this. And it'll never be like if we're waiting for someone to give us the okay we are not doing a significant contribution at that point, like to shake things up. Um, and so what I find is that there's a lot of conformity, unfortunately, and that's to your detriment. So when people say like, oh, trans people are just uh, denying the body and the real, but people have been saying that for a hundred years, you're saying nothing new. Uh, like it's like that Eric Andre meme where he's just saying like, how could you say something so uh brave and, and so controversial uh I, th I think there's something very ironic about the pretext that you know you are actually like doing something like transgressive at that point and i know Slavoj Žižek has this whole line about like the most transgressive thing you can do is asserting the law and maybe there's something a valuable point to that i don't think there is always there's something a point where those things break down and i think even Slavoj gets to this point we need to find the truth where things go wrong. And that's the process that I find myself being very committed to this. Yeah. Yeah, and just shifting the whole kind of narrative to like, instead of trying to nail things down all the time, like why don't you just, people need to get more comfortable with the, with these processes, you know? 
Yeah, I, I think it's this question like learning to be uncomfortable. Like, I, and again, this is maybe to my detriment because I, I haven't gone to analysis. Um, Edmonton, Alberta doesn't have, I think there's only one analyst and I think there's more Jungians than anything here. And I, unfortunately, I'm very reluctant about Jungianism personally. So I don't know how that would do for me uh, in, in a therapeutic sense or just even in terms of going to analysis. Um, but um, I, I find it very interesting, uh, like circumstantially, like that's definitely like a blind spot to my own experience. But what I'm seeing here is, is this thing that we chatted about. If you have gone through analysis, if you're a practicing analyst, how can you be doing any of these things exactly? Because it's an ultimately the fundamental confrontation that we're dealing with is this, you know, a permanent discomfort, this permanent dysfunction. Uh, rather than like trying to maintain it in a sense of like really back into some functionalism or some conformity. Um, I just find that it just runs in the face of what we are trying to do here. Yeah, and maybe it's because they've all been through training analyses with analysts that have been like approved by their institute and and hopefully it's not happening anywhere now, but it used to be where the analysts would like, like had to like pass them basically for them to like continue to go to like next year, the next level of training, you know? So that's yeah, fact. This is where I find like projects like uh, what the folks in, in the group, Dasu Benhaven, I think I pronounced that right, like are, are doing because it's just like, yeah, we need to think outside just like the constraints of, the, of these institutions because they limit a lot of what we can ultimately do you know, I think there's a value and beauty to laws and institutions. Like, again, I'm a, a, a Hegelian, so I do think there's something fundamental, but those things need to learn to die. As I was saying, like, gods need to learn to die eventually. And that's very a very significant process for us. So as much as I think there's a value and beauty and spirit to those things, if those laws, if those institutions become dead institutions, what good are they? And that's where the disruptions become significant. That's why like groups groups like that, the Suven Coven, are very significant right now to what we're trying to do with psychoanalysis. And this is why I find myself like reading more and more or learning more from folks in, in, in groups like that. I think most of my most significant interactions with psychoanalysis, uh, like in a contemporaneous sense, not just looking back at like, you know, I try to understand like I'm very well. I, I think most of my more contemporary interactions with that are most fruitful learning from folks that are trying to do a project like that. Absolutely. Yeah. We have to learn to become dying gods. Yeah. It's kind of become like a theme around our household. Like uh, I I was chatting with my partner this morning because I'm taking a course at GCAS on philosophical theology coming up. And like, I love theology. Um, I would even say sometimes I'm a crypto Christian, even though I'm, I, I don't know, I, I'm more of an atheist explicitly, but um, I'm very interested, interested in this question. Like, you know, how do we even arrive to the radical theologies of the death of God and dying gods? And, you know, anyone from like Hegel's own claim on the death of God to Philip Mainlander saying that, oh yeah, we only exist in the corpse of God. So we are God decaying. Or people like um, Frank Nietzsche's own formulation, most famous formulation of the death of God that came after those other two. Um, so I find it very interesting because we're dealing with this confrontation that comes at a perfect time, right? We're dealing with crises as a culture. That's why we're dealing with a lot of like, I don't know, like anything ranging from white supremacist groups to groups that are fun, uh, like very concerned with fundamentalism of a culture, thinking that they can return to some fundamental like pure culture, like. 
and this is kind of my answer is very similar to what I've been saying with psychoanalysis. The point is not to have a pure culture. The point of culture and in culturing, and this is my Hegelian perspective, because I think this is what Hegel gets to with his project on culture, is to impurify culture. It's always the failures through which we engage with culture in any meaningful sense. Uh, so why would we want to return to some pure idyllic uh, culture in some way? Um, similarly like things like capitalism i do think play a role in this like disruption of like spirituality and meaningfulness because now everything has been desubstantialized to the commodity so we are dealing with that phenomenon and it doesn't have just this like cultural meaningful implications it has material implications as well to the point that you know it's not even culture that's decaying so to speak is is uh, the material world that we're living in that's the gang. So we're confronted with like a triple threat of issues right now. And maybe this is the way uh, the way I, I, I could wrap up things because this is the horizon of issues that I'm proceeding from. And ironically, this is what I'm still engaging on in the end of things. Um, in uh, pun non intended, we're dealing with the crisis of capitalism, which I already can introduce in some way. I I am ultimately like pretty committed to a lot of Marxism. I do think there's significant perspectives to that. Uh, I think we're dealing with a crisis of culture. Uh, you know, as much as I fundamentally disagree with Jordan Peterson, there's a reason why there's like uh, Peterson daddy boys uh, lashing out the way they are, because there's some fundamental crises in, in culture and the, the place the people have seen they would have in the world. That, that place is no longer there. So what does it mean for that culture to be a dying God? Um, and then the environment is just, what do we do with a decaying world, which is the substance, both of like the material economics that we have and the uh, culture that it has been built on it. So, yeah, these are the problems I see today. And I, I know that I was chatting with Don McGowan because we've been teaching together with Crescent Davis, the course on Hegel and the Phenomenology Spirit. And one of her students asked like, you know, how can I, uh, like as a Hegelian, what's the work I should be doing today? And, you know, one answer is a very academic one, like, oh yeah, there's new lectures on Hegel that were just found. You should study that. The more like genuine Hegelian answer, in my opinion, is look around you and see the issues that are happening right now. Because that's uh, what you can captivate a picture of in your own thought right now. And also like, you know, kind of in the same spirit of these locations we've been talking about, I think that's the point of Hegelianism or what he calls concrete universality. You have to take account of the particular things of, of your world because this is actually how you prop up yourself to universality. This is how you take a note of, you know, uh, I, I know this is kind of what Todd mentioned in our lecture that the problem is ultimately dealing with the environment. Like we need to engage with Hegelian questions of the environment. And I think uh, the philosophy of nature in the encyclopedia of uh, Hegel's encyclopedia is a uh, neglected book in many ways. Like I, I, there's people working on it, of course, but I find that it's it's more uh, so people engaging with the logic or the uh, philosophy of right or uh, this uh, the questions of spirit and mind. Um, but yeah, I I, th I think engaging with these three this triple threads of issues is just this is what's happening right now. And I think any meaningful work we can have, uh, I, th I think actually both in philosophy and psychoanalysis has to engage with that pretty head on. And do you want to stop with that? Is there anything else you want to mention? I, th I think that's it. Like Leave I don't have- with that. That's yeah. I, I think that's the most Hegelian approach I can have to things. Just like, you know, I'm not going to give you an answer. I got to give you a problem. <laughs> uh, and the thing is like the answer 
can become a death and dead answer all along. The problem is what's enlivening. And, and that comes back to where we started, right? Like the point is life ultimately. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Simone Medina Polo. For more, follow her on social media at pseudo underscore Antigone. And now, a song by Pseudo Antigone, Into the Void of Infinite Sadness, from the album of the same name, available at her Bandcamp. Visit pseudo-antigone.bandcamp.com. The saints too late corrupt my very ways To try to get by my mental health is crashing down The hours of endless spiraling My soul power corrupt by viruses The saints too late corrupt my very ways To try to get by my mental health is crashing down The hours of endless spiraling My soul power Every move is done by the world's glance Scamming down your neck Forever the breath Of illness creeping in Or loneliness The separatedness Habits not hell The void of infinite sadness Caught by Survive for now with everything on God All that brought them is constraint Favoring a haunting plague That dream and that is absurd You are